Happy August, listeners. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with Grant Faulkner, as always. And I think I can speak for a lot of folks when I say that it feels like we're holding our collective breath here as we look toward an uncertain fall. And then we're taking a break during the month of August, but we're seeing this season through by revisiting our favorite episodes from the past. Yeah, that's right, Brooke. And and I like just the uh, theme of revisiting in general as a way to to sort of relearn and remind yourself of what was good. And it was super fun to go back and re-listen to some of those interviews and really amazing to remember all the nuggets of insight and wisdom our guests have offered up. So we're rolling out our A plus August, partnering up uh, some of the best of the best by genre. Yeah, I love that we're doing this because it also gives our listeners an opportunity to think about genre generally, what you're writing, of course. And I hope also that this podcast inspires reading. And I'm so immersed in the land of memoir. And then if I'm not reading memoir, I'm reading fiction. And so many of our guests have prompted me to read outside my lanes. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I most appreciate about doing this podcast is how we're exposed to other genres, processes, ways of thinking about writing. You know, it makes me not just a better writer, but a better person. And perhaps that's what we should be striving for, actually, as we enter into our new fourth season together on Right Minded. I love that idea, Grant. Better readers, better humans. And better extraterrestrials. That's a bumper (laughs) sticker, Brooke. Right-minded, better readers, better humans, better extraterrestrials. Totally. Yes, on the bumper stickers. And so while we go get those printed up, enjoy your August and enjoy today's mashup A-plus August episode. All right, everybody, we are back with Disha Filia and Disha's debut short story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction and for the Story Prize. Disha is also the co-author of Co-Parenting 101, Helping Your Kids Thrive in Two Households After Divorce, which was written in collaboration with her ex-husband. Her work has been listed as notable in the Best American Essays series, and her writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Disha is a Kimbilio Fiction Fellow and a past Pushcart Prize nominee for essay writing, and she lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Disha, welcome, and thanks for being with us. Hey, Brooke. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled. I first want to say congratulations on how much attention your book has been getting, uh, which is, of course, so well deserved. And it was a finalist, as I said, for the National Book Award and the Story Prize. And it was recently announced that there will be an adaptation on HBO Max, which is all so exciting. Very. I was so happy when I could finally announce it. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. My gosh, I can't even imagine. keeping that secret. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, you know, I want to say this book is a slip of a thing. You know, it's nine stories under 200 pages. It's got a small trim size. And so this is kind of my roundabout way of asking you about the power of things that come in small packages and what your thoughts are about short stories as a vehicle to making an impact as opposed to long form or novel length fiction. 
So I think short stories surprised a lot of people this year, <laughs> not only my collection or this past year, um, but some others that received a lot of um, either awards or nominations or just really good attention to the form. And, you know, my only other book was nonfiction, so I don't really know this world, but I have just noted how many readers who enjoy my book will preface their comments by saying, you know, I don't really, I don't usually like short stories and I don't, I don't understand that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel like with a collection, you know, I don't think that one is better than the other. I think that they both have that power. Um, you know, they both have the power of narrative and, and the power of storytelling to impact change, to help people feel seen and heard and empowered um, you can do that in stories. You can do that in novels as well. I felt fortunate in the story form or the story collection format to do more in some ways in that, you know, I was able to look at a lot of different experiences that women, um, Black women deal with as it relates to sex in the Black church. And so across generations, four generations, um, looking at um, some very unique situations that I think in a novel situation, a novel setting, I may not have been able to go as broad or as deep. Um, and certainly not in, in less than 200 pages. Um, so that's, you know, kind of the beauty of it. And, you know, there seems to be a resonance for people just to have these sort of bite-sized stories. People would tell me they, you know, I read one um, before I went to bed. Um, so, you know, stories have that kind of reach. And then also for me as a writer, being able to experiment with different forms within one book and engage readers in, in different ways. So I think the, the collection is a little more, story collections may be a little more nimble, um, but still have the same kind of power that you get with a novel. The, the stories themselves are so readable, so fresh, so unexpected. And I think those are just a few of the descriptions that might explain why readers are so excited about your collection. And I heard you say in another interview that one of your themes is writing about dissatisfied women. Yes. Um, and I guess I think you know, most women are dissatisfied, A. <laughs> um, there you go. And then there's this intersection between sex and church, which is taboo and simultaneously salacious. And so I'm curious if this truism about sex selling played into what you were writing at all. And if not, what caused you to focus specifically on church ladies' sex lives? So, you know, I talk about one thing I've I've come to understand about my own work, so much of it I've come to understand after the fact. Um, and it's I feel like my book is as much about freedom as it is about sex. And if you're writing about black women trying to get free of the ways that the church has bound them, has, you know, has harmed us, has hindered us, has limited us and or, or condemned us all of those things it's all sex is always going to be in that because the church is so obsessed with sex in general women's sex lives and sexuality and reproductive lives in particular and so if you're talking about women getting free of what binds them and black women in particular it, and it's tied to the church and the church is more raised, even when you've left the church, you know, so, you know, we still have those, all those Sunday school lessons, all those sermons, they're still in our heads. Um, there's so much unlearning and unpacking that we have to do. And so much of it is around 
you know, what the church calls promiscuity or immorality and certainly, you know, homosexuality and, and, and where the church, the traditional black evangelical church has stood on, uh, on, on the topic of homosexuality. So it was just really organic. But in my case in particular, when I started writing about dissatisfied women, it was really me, but I didn't feel comfortable at that time as a, you know, I had a a young child and I was married and I didn't feel like I could write about my own dissatisfaction as truth. And as Toni Morrison has said, you know, fiction is not fact, but it's truth. And so I gave my dissatisfaction um, to the women in my imagination, many of whom were these church ladies. And those early stories, some had to do with you know, sexual dissatisfaction, but others had to do with just general feeling of not being able to kind of live out loud, but really feeling like you're living the life that somebody else wanted for you. And that's very much how I felt at that time. And so I think because nostalgia is such a big part of of my memory and my imagination, I keep going back to the well of those women, um, those church women. And so that was kind of how those things came together. You know, Disha, I remember the moment that I became aware of you when I looked at the National Book Award nominees. And and one thing I noticed was that your book was published on a university press. And and I, I, I really did a moment of, wow, huh, you know, and I, I went and checked out the West uh, Virginia University Press just because this is like kind of unusual. And I, and I saw that they don't highlight anything about acquiring or specializing in fiction. And Brooke and I are always encouraging authors to cast their net wide when it comes to getting published. Yes. And I know you had an agent who placed this book with West Virginia University Press, but did you initially have any reservations about publishing with the University Press? And and what has the experience been like for you? It was such an unknown, (laughs) you know, for me, my first book was published on a small press, um, New Harbinger Publications. Um, So I was used to working with a small press, but I was surprised, like, why would a university, why would an academic press be interested in this book? Um, But this book is now being taught in universities. So they saw that duality, that there could be multiple readerships for this book. Um, And I'm really grateful that they had that vision. And I think that my book came to WVU Press at a time when they are, you know, casting that vision wider and wanting to bring in a a wider range of of voices and to bring in more fiction and and so forth. And my agent had met the director of the press, Derek Krisoff, maybe a year or so before my book was ready, but I was working on it. And so he has been thinking about you know, as as you can imagine, you know, he's always thinking about the, the direction that the press is going and, and how it can grow. And he saw my book as part of that. And I think that's incredible. And so I think that university presses have that nimbleness that maybe some of the bigger ones do and are willing to take those kinds of chances. And it, it's making me think about something you asked earlier about Black bookstagrammers, you know, working with the university press. Once we saw that the Black bookstagrammers were all all in on my book, you know, we just jumped in with them as well and the and the press as well. And and so, you know, you can see my press commenting on their posts and and things like that. And I don't know that I would have had the same kind of really hands-on 
high touch experience with a different press. So I think that, you know, that's something else that's special about at least this particular university press. And I was, you know, never asked to, you know, try and universalize my book. We're engaging. This is a, I'm a Black author. It's a Black book. Other people are connecting to it and that's awesome. You know, and and I'm making these connections with Black Instagrammers who seek out Black authors. And so before I knew where this book was going to find a home, that was one of my concerns about getting published. And, you know, would the publishing house want me to translate culture or, you know, uh, my book doesn't have any white characters in it. Like, how would they, you know, respond to that? You know, but my experience with the university press has been the book is taken for what it is. And the book that you see is better than the one I turned in, but it's still the book I wanted to write. Um, and and I, I hope it, that people, you know, Black authors can have these experiences with larger publishers. But I think I, I wish this experience for every Black author. It, it's been great. That's so awesome to hear. And I, I, it is a great segue actually for my next question, because I had listened to an interview where you talked about having been inspired by Kiese Lehman, who we've had on this show and uh, other people's courage. And you specifically spoke to that idea, just as you did now about writing what you want to write. And it's so important. And I think writers in general, but I think particularly writers of color have felt particularly boxed in. And when Kiese was on our show, he talked about that, like he had kind of earned this right to not give a shit anymore. Right. And I wonder if you have, you know, is like, since this is your debut effort, does that just give you license, you know, that you're like, yes, this is what I'm going to do from now on. And, and had you experienced that sense of being boxed in or, you know, people trying to tell you that you need to universalize or appeal to a white audience? Thankfully, I have never experienced that. Um, it's mostly hearing from other writers. Um, and that's what gave me a lot of trepidation. There are a lot of writers that um, I know who have published on different presses, large and small. And, you know, were asked to what I call translate culture, whereas, you know, you assume that the reader is not going to understand certain dialogue or certain cultural references or things like that. And, you know, Black writers being asked to translate in ways that other writers aren't. It's assumed, you know, that if you're a white writer, that, you know, people will get all of those cultural references or that they'll use context clues. And my position is then the same thing should be for Black writers. You know, if I don't know what something is in a book, I'll Google it. I mean, it, it's it's not that hard. So, I, you know, I, I feel like I've been inordinately blessed and fortunate in my publishing experiences um, because they, you know, the two experiences I've had have been so positive. Um, the end result were two books were that I set out to write and that I'm proud of. And I think now it's like, I, I, I know too much <laughs> to go back. Um, I know how much hard work goes into promoting a book um, after it comes out. I can't imagine doing all of this for a book that I am absolutely not in love with and that is not the book I set out to write. And so I'm prepared uh, because that is the goal for me is to make sure that I love and I'm proud of the book. You know, whatever that means, um, I, I'm not going to to waver on that. And so, you know, it doesn't mean less money. Does it mean, you know, uh, 
a smaller publishing house, you know, whatever that means, those are where my priorities are. I appreciate, you know, the accolades and attention that the book has gotten, but I've also learned that, you know, there's always some other prize that you didn't get nominated for or some other list that you're not on, you know? And so I don't feel like I have anything to lose at this point. And so whatever I write, it's going to be for me and what I want it to be, what I want to put out into the world. I wanted to ask you about this idea of getting intentional, because it was another thing that I read that you said you did, you know, that you got intentional once your agent noticed this pattern of your writing about Black women, sex, and the Black church. So can you talk about what getting intentional felt like or what it means to you um, and what shifted inside of you that led you to take your fiction off the back burner in that way and truly prioritize it in the way you have? It's, you know, it's uh, it's connected to what I was just saying about that time. It felt, writing that novel felt impossible because I was looking at it, you know, it was like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time or something like that? And I couldn't see that. It was like, all I could see was the elephant. And, you know, you wake up every day and think, can I eat this elephant? No, I'm going to go do something else, you know, day after day. And my agent's suggestion to me that I write a short story collection felt like a bite instead of the whole thing. It was like, oh, I could take that bite. Because what she said was, you know, you've got, I had two stories done. She saw this kind of through line running through it of church ladies. That was her, she coined that phrase. And she said, you know, while you're, the, the novel is on hiatus, if you can get published three stories that could be the basis for this collection, after that third story is published, we can pitch this as a partial manuscript to publishing houses. That felt doable to me you know, she brought it down to size. And so then I got intentional of like, okay, I have a, a goal. It's not, I need to finish this novel and I, that I got two thirds of the way on installed and I've got to solve that problem. That felt impossible. Write a story that feels possible. Submit that story and get it published. That felt possible. Do that three times. That felt possible. And so I think again, it's bringing it down to size. And so you know, write a novel is, 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 is huge, or even write a short story collection is huge. But I'm going to write for 30 minutes at six o'clock every morning. That's a bite. That's doable. And so when I felt that it was possible, then I got really intentional about it. And by the time I sold three or had published three stories, I actually had a total of six that formed the partial manuscript. So then once the book was sold, then I just needed to finish the manuscript. So, you know, getting a publishing deal obviously is a motivator, <laughs> you know, but really it was my agent bringing it down to size that helped me to get really intentional. Love that, Disha. Well, thank you. And I can't wait to watch these characters unfold on the HBO series. So congratulations and good luck. Yeah, thank you, Disha. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to introduce Kim Adonizio, uh, who is the author of 13 books, including the poetry collection Now We're Getting Somewhere, which just came out, and a memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress, Confessions from a Writing Life, which is one of my favorite writing books and a great memoir as well. And her book, Tell Me, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and then she's received 
NEA and Guggenheim fellowships and won two pushcart prizes. And perhaps most importantly, she also wrote an award-winning 100-word story for my little lit journal, 100-word story. So welcome, Kim. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, so Kim, Brooke and I have been talking about the role of confession in writing because you're often referred to as a confessional poet. But I'd like to pause and explore that a bit because confession can be interpreted as being about something hidden or something you've done wrong or something you're ashamed of or something you need to purge yourself of and ask forgiveness for. And I don't quite see your poetry coming out of those places. Rather, I think you write about the messiness of life and the odd place it leads, and, and you do so in a really unflinching, unvarnished way. So I'm curious, what's your take on being called a confessional poet so frequently, and do you even see yourself as confessional? I'll, um, okay. I'll state it right here for the record. I am a poet of ideas. Good. <laughs> and I mean that. Um, ideas and states of feeling. No, I don't consider myself a confessional poet, although I've been tarred and feathered um, with that label many times. And I think it's um, I think it's a really usually now it's meant as a disparaging label, mm. um, often applied to women that has to do with people using personal experience in some way in their work, which I do use personal experience, um, but uh, not in the way that. I, I don't know. I, I think it's um, – that's what I think on one hand. On the other hand, I think also, you know, the confessional is sort of a mode, as in um, a literary mode that one can use and employ uh, just as, you know, certain genres can be literary as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so th that's more the way that I think of it. I, I'm not trying to confess my sins. I'm trying to write about what it's like to be alive in the world. And so, uh, you know, I may or may not draw my personal experience and the things I write may or may not be autobiographically true. I have no fidelity at all to writing the literal truth. I'm much more interested in the emotional truth and the, and like I said, in, in exploring ideas about things. And so I'll use whatever's at hand. If that's my personal experience, I'll use that. But I think it's really dangerous to conflate the the artists with their work in such a kind of naive, therapeutic, direct way. And I find it happens in poetry so much more than in other places. You know, hmm. it, novelists aren't generally attacked <laughs> or put down for writing something that may be somewhat based on personal experience or for using it in some fictionalized way. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Painters aren't vilified for doing self-portraits and called narcissists and, you know, all that stuff. I think it's just a real way to, um, you know, it's a way to diminish the work and to diminish the artist as someone who is making something, not someone who's, you know, spilling their journal onto the page. Well, Kim, thanks for that insight. And uh, your publicist told us that we should read the poem to the woman crying uncontrollably in the next stall before anything else in your new collection. And so we thought it would be helpful given the context of the kind of writing that we're talking about. And I love that, a poet of ideas. If you could read that poem so that readers could get a sense of your style and then maybe unpack it a bit in terms of what it holds for you in terms of the um, sentiments you're trying to get across. Yeah, sure. That's one that that's, um, seems to have gotten a lot of love on social media. So I'll just read it. To the woman crying uncontrollably in the next stall. 
If you ever woke in your dress at 4 a.m., ever closed your legs to someone you loved, opened them for someone you didn't, moved against a pillow in the dark, stood miserably on a beach, seaweed clinging to your ankles, paid good money for a bad haircut, backed away from a mirror that wanted to kill you, bled into the back seat for lack of a tampon, If you swam across a river under rain, sang using a dildo for a microphone, stayed up to watch the moon eat the sun entire, ripped out the stitches in your heart, because why not? If you think nothing and no one can, listen, I love you. Joy is coming. Wow. Thank you. I have the hairs standing up on end here and would love to hear a little bit about what that holds for you. And I I can certainly understand why it's gotten a lot of love on social media. I think that that ending, you know, I think after that litany of things, um, you know, that last line, listen, I love you, joy is coming has really resonated with people, Mm. Um, maybe particularly, uh, you know, during the pandemic and during those hard times. But but it's very much a poem of solace, I think, for women. And I'd be surprised to find a woman who has not either heard that woman in the next doll or been that woman (laughs) in the next doll. So uh, I think that's one reason why it touched a nerve for a lot of people. But um, I don't see any, anything confessional in that poem. I mean, first of all, it's addressed to someone else, you know, I mean, it's addressed in the sense of solidarity and sisterhood and, and, you know, implies I too have done these things or similar things, but you know, as I was writing, I wasn't thinking about my own experience um, as much as, you know, what's the right image here? And what's an image that's going to speak to various experiences that women have had? Some of them mine, some of them friends. <laughs> so you can't, you know, you can't know from the poem. It's a, it's a construction, you know? Our show often focuses on sort of the more positive, buoyant aspects of writing, but we also have to acknowledge the anguishing, if not torturous parts of writing as well, uh, which you've written about. I want to read a quote from Bukowski in a sundress that puts uh, this in sharp context. You said, if writing were a person, you would be in an abusive relationship. The healthy thing to do would be to get a restraining order and shut it right out of your heart. I thought that was such an interesting way to put it. But having said that, what keeps you writing and how do you guide your students through this this type of abusive relationship? Well, you know, that's, of course, hyperbole in the service of humor. (laughs) (laughs) I should have pointed that out, but it sometimes doesn't feel that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's truth in it as well, right? And uh, yeah, and Bukowski in a sundress, there's a lot of humor based on hyperbole. So I, I think... You know, writing is, it, it does feel fraught. It feels fraught for me often. I, I When I sit down, I I want to write, but I, I can't necessarily write anything that's going to be any more than garbage, you know? So I spend a lot of time sitting there writing garbage and, and trying to get to something more interesting and more compelling. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't, you know, it's not reliable, which is very frustrating. <laughs> You know, you do other things and you develop some skills and, you know, like if you practice your tennis stroke or you practice a musical instrument, the next time you get on the court or the next time you sit down with your instrument, 
you can rely on some of that training and feel like you you have that at your back in a way and and you can use it um in writing it that is true but you can't tap into it every time you sit down you know that that experience and the skills you've learned so it's frustrating in that way and so i spend a lot of time you know complaining about writing mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as i spend writing happily well, since we started ta- by talking about confession, perhaps we can end by talking about it in perhaps the best way possible through poetry. I thought it was so interesting that you have one section in your book called confessional poetry, but there aren't individual poems in that section. So I don't know if, if it's a single poem or a series of poems or a series of stray phrases and moments, but it's it's a really wonderful expression. So I was wondering if you could read from that section. Yeah, sure. It is all one poem. And I think you can tell that when you read through it, because there are, you know, there's a point where it says it's this, and then there's a voice that comes in and says, no, it's this. That's clearly responding to the previous sections. So Mm -hmm. um, it was originally actually all pretty much one page or a little over a page. And I just got the idea one day of breaking it down into sections as a way of letting each idea or image speak a little bit. And also I think of each page as kind of a, in a way like you're entering a confessional in a church where you're going into that little phone booth. And so I just wanted to put some space around the ideas and assertions. And that's why there are like, you know, two to, or one to four or five lines on every page. So it's not a very long piece. It just gets spread out. And I'll, I'll read a little from it. Confessional poetry. Writing it is like firing a nail gun into the center of a vanity mirror, or slowly shaking a souvenir snow globe of asbestos and shame to quiet an imaginary baby. It's like sewing rhinestones on your traumas so you can wear them to a pain festival, or beating a pinata selfie with a pink rubber bat so you can pet the demons that fall out. No, the confessional is a mode among other modes. Right now, I'm getting fingered in the museum bathroom during a Cindy Sherman exhibit while discussing Susan Sontag's The Pornographic Imagination and live-streaming it on Instagram. Why don't you follow me? A beef-witted male critic is indexing my sins in a highly regarded literary publication, super-gluing my clitoris forever to the pillar of historical irrelevance. And I'll just stop there. That's actually about already halfway through the poem. But, um, you know, Cindy Sherman is an obvious reference. And um, Susan Sontag's The Pornographic Imagination is a really interesting essay that I read many, many years ago that always stayed with me in which she talks about pornography as a mode of literature. Hmm. And some writers like George Bataille, for example, uh, who were using it in a more theoretical way. And she contends that what they were doing was not writing porn, but using the structures of pornography to investigate something else related to ideas. So we're back to that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a poet of ideas. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. I think that was such an interesting way to explore confessional poetry. And I hope uh, redefine yourself for those who, who've, uh, you know, kind of put you in a corner. 
Yeah, I expect it to be widely misunderstood. Well, and that's what brings so many people to the page. And so it's really, um, it's also arresting and, and disturbing in a way and also hopeful and joyous. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Kim. It was great to talk with you. You as well. Again, thanks, everyone. We hope you're enjoying your summer and that you enjoyed listening to or revisiting these episodes. We have some really exciting special new guests coming up starting September 6th as we enter our fourth year of Right Minded, believe it or not. So while you're enjoying your summer, maybe also tell a friend about us. Help us continue to spread the word. In fact, Brooke, didn't we say that we were going to give a brand new BMW to whoever spreads the word the furthest? Yes, we totally said that, but we might have to downgrade it to like a CRV just because it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, please go for it. Spread the word. Thank you so much. And remember that we are in your feed all August and then for the rest of 2021 and then for the rest of 2022. Forever. And we're extremely grateful for your listenership. Happy summer, everyone.